but I've always been drawn to conflict and and social tension. I find I find that part of society interesting. I want to understand that. Um, and I think as nations and states kind of reconcile with their own identity and and those kind of fractures become visible, um, that's something that needs exploring. And I, I'm drawn to those spaces. Welcome to the Archipelago Photography Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Morton. This podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Presets, a community of photographers united by a passion for our craft and a growing collection of some of the world's finest Lightroom presets and post-production tools. As a way of thanking you for tuning in, we're offering all of our podcast listeners a discount of 20% on your next purchase. Visit us at archipelagopresets.com and use the code PODCAST20 to redeem this special offer. Adam Ferguson is an Australian photographer, a member of the Seven Photo Agency, and a contributor to the New York Times, Time Magazine, and National Geographic. A true visual storyteller, his work has won numerous awards and much recognition and is always thoughtful and compelling. Adam shares insight into his career and process, and we chat about many of his projects and assignments that have taken him from Australia to Afghanistan and beyond. If, if we can back up a bit, uh, Adam, um, I know you've been doing photography for quite some time, but uh, how, did, how did that all start for you? Like, how did you actually become interested in, in photography? Uh, Sean, I fell into photography, really. Okay. I was a... Uh, a disillusioned, you know, middle class young man, you know, in my early twenties in Australia. Yeah. And, you know, had hadn't done so well at school. Um, you know, it wasn't I, I just, you know, like a lot of kind of young kind of teenage uh men, I guess, you know, just struggled with kind of the school system and had had trouble like identifying with you know, academia and, and excelling at that. Um, so I made a, made a terrible mess of my kind of high school certificate in, in Australia. Um, and then wasn't doing much actually, except surfing and skateboarding and, (laughs) and hanging out much to my parents disgust. Um, and I met a photographer, um, who, who photographed this weekend. He was a, a photographer who, was a good friend of my best mate's older brother and he'd come up from Sydney to my hometown on the northeast coast of New South Wales and he photographed us this weekend skating and hanging out and I just had this very whimsical uh, idea that I could be a photographer too Mm -hmm. and I would get into extreme sports photography. I was surfing at the time, skydiving, skating, uh, so applied to the same art college that this photographer went to, uh, and, you know, I, I called that this was back in the day when I, I didn't even have an email address right. and I called the college and they'd closed applications for the year. And the secretary who I, I spoke to told me that if I, express posted her uh, a portfolio by the middle of the following week that she would 
put it in the pile. Yeah. Um, so I grabbed my mum's camera, which was a old Pentax K1000, and I mm-hmm. ran around shooting a portfolio madly, and <laughs> you know had it express processed in a in a lab in my hometown. That was back when you still had film processing labs in everywhere. Small towns. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and got accepted to this uh, this art college, and you know went off with my mum's Pentax K1000, and got there and that's when everything shifted uh i in my first semester i had the the documentary um stream convener and he was an avid social documentarian Mm -hmm. and i just found myself thrown into this world of photojournalism and documentary photography and the moment i saw that kind of work uh which i'd never looked at um in the form of long-form monographs and in-depth photojournalism and long-term projects. Yeah. Once I started engaging with work like that, I just knew that I'd found my thing. And yeah. I've never photographed surfing or skateboarding <laughs> <laughs> or any sport for that matter. And I just kind of went straight down this kind of path of, of, of documentary photography. Yeah, that's interesting. So it just clicked with you right off the bat. Um, and, and obviously that's, that's something you've, you've kind of stuck with throughout, throughout your career till now, um, in, in quite a significant way. Um, I noticed, so, so I'll, I'll back up a bit, I guess, I think, um, like I, I first discovered your work and, and I'm pretty sure it was the image of a soldier sitting on top of a hill in Afghanistan, wrapped in a blanket, looking through that, looking through that, uh, what, what was it? Like, a so well, it's called a long-range acquisition site. Right. Yeah. So it's this yeah. this really haunting image. He's sitting there. He kind of looks like a Buddha, you know, sitting wrapped and and shrouded in this blanket. But he's got this glowing green light on his face, and and that was, it's, you know, a really captivating image. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about, I guess, a couple things in that. So first of all, there's the disconnect, right? So I think you talk about this. In, in, in talking about the work that you've done in photographing wars and, and in conflict and, and this type of thing, right? Um, so there's the disconnect, you know, between the soldiers and sort of this, you know, often far off targets that they're engaging with sort of, um, you know, in, in a very surreal way, like as, as, and we see that in this image, right? Like this, this soldier's looking at the screen. What he's looking at is, is far away. It's way down the valley. Like there's, there's that physical disconnect, um, so I want to talk to you about that, but also too about, um, your feelings about, um, maybe the discomfort in maybe the celebration of these images or even the type of work, you know, that, that we kind of see as, um, you know, photojournalists or, or war photographers or conflict photography is that maybe you can dive into those two things a little bit for us. Sure. When I started, I think I definitely started with the ethic of wanting to be an anti-war photographer. Like the appeal was to participate in these very important social and political events and create narratives which help us unpack them Mm -hmm. as a society and also unpack them as taxpayers that are participating in this industrial military complex. So that's, that's always, that was always the mission as a photographer to make images which are negated the war mm-hmm. in a way um, or at least help us understand the nuances of it and let people decide for themselves uh, you know that or, or f- let people form their own opinions about these kind of conflicts um, I did 
and I did talk about this in my newsletter a bit, the one you're talking about, about the Afghan portraits that I made. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that happened when I started to photograph, um, you know, I, it became very apparent that, you know, photographs have a life of their own. You yeah. know, it doesn't really matter what you put into an image. It's ultimately a very polyvalent medium mm-hmm. and photographs go on to exist and people bring their own opinions to them, the way a photograph exists next to text or the way it's published under a headline mm-hmm. uh, or even the way it's shown in a gallery and the kind of framing around a, a photograph, um, you know, really puts a layer of meaning on it and and the photographer doesn't have total control, especially right. when working in a, in a news context. So I think I started to get a bit disillusioned covering the war because I went off with this anti-war kind of ethos and I realized that it didn't matter how anti-war my pictures were, they still somehow supported um, the American and the international mission in Afghanistan. They still kind of propped up this industrial military complex. Mm-hmm. I still made soldiers heroes, even if they made them look gritty and struggle, struggling and, and ugly mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. It didn't matter how much kind of disillusion um, I infused into that work. Um, and how much I captured the disillusion that a lot of the soldiers and Marines I spent time with were feeling. Uh, they still, they existed in this, in this space that's fueled by our understanding of war from popular culture and Hollywood films, um, and, and our kind of inherent bias to feel nationalistic as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the photo that you're talking about which was a young U.S. infantry soldier sitting on a hill in Afghanistan looking through this surveillance scope, mm-hmm. ultimately, is what it, what it is. Yeah. And he was monitoring a road uh, looking for insurgents or Taliban who might have been planting bombs in the road mm-hmm. because there was a lot of that in the, that region at the time. It was in the Tangi Valley in Wardak province in Afghanistan. That whole area now is back under Taliban control. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that image for me always became a symbol of that conflict because it did the thing that you're talking about. Um, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of hand-to-hand combat. The war was very impersonal. Yeah. You, you know, you'd have a, a young soldier that would come to Afghanistan who didn't even have a passport a lot of the time and be fighting in this very kind of remote corner of the war fighting against insurgents and farmers and this very kind of complex enemy, uh, much more complex than uh, we, we think about it when we, we, th- we think about the Taliban as this one-dimensional kind of enemy that uh, supported terrorists and supported al-Qaeda and, and kind of aided and, and harbored uh, those groups to, to right. bomb America in 9-11. Right. Uh, and it was much more complex than that on the ground. Um, and these these young men felt that, and they I, they felt that disconnect when they were there fighting that war. So so to see this soldier kind of looking through this piece of technology at an enemy that he never knowingly sees up close or fights hand to hand felt like a an adequate symbol of what I was experiencing on the ground. Yeah, and and I think you've also expressed 
uh, and you touched on it a bit there. There's there's a bit of a, a disillusionment on your on your own part in, in this work. So I guess your first trip to Afghanistan was self funded, right? Like you, this was something you did on your own, but then you ended up returning, right? Um, to sort of become, you did some work embedded um, with with the the U.S. forces, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you find now? Like the the assignments you're doing now, are you? Are you are you do you do you kind of take what's thrown at you or is there some sort of process where like I guess we could talk about your recent work you just did um, with migrants uh, at the at the U.S. border. So this this project in particular, are are, are you now making the deci- decision on okay, this is what I want to do. These are the stories I want to tell, as opposed to like something like okay, you're going to be embedded with the, you know the U.S. forces and and sure you're going to have some you know, creative control over the images you take, take but uh, where, where are you at now with, with the projects that you take on in that regard? It, it, it's a good question. Um, I think for most of my career, I've tried to engineer assignments around things that I am interested in or, mm-hmm. or feel mm-hmm. invested in. Yeah. That's always yeah. been pretty core to how I've operated as a freelancer. Although having said that, you know, I still make economic decisions to take assignments yeah. that I perhaps am not that invested in. Um, or something comes along that I hadn't thought about before and I'm like that seems incredibly interesting and a very important story and I'm happy to participate in that conversation as a photographer yeah um, yeah. with the work in Afghanistan I did I did go for the first time uh, on my own dime I was based in India at the time I was freelancing I very much wanted to to go and photograph in Afghanistan and and work in that war context so I self-funded my first trip but then I started pitching embeds to Time magazine. Um, I started corresponding with the New York Times and kind of really expressed my interest in kind of working more yeah. there. So, you know, the, the, the big embeds that I did for Time magazine, I pitched most of those stories. Okay. Um, and then I also did some that they assigned me because I was expressing interest in, in working there. Yeah. Um, and since then, as kind of my career has developed, I think – I, a lot of the stuff I am pitching, the migrant story that I recently did for the New York Times in Mexico, I pitched that story. Um, so it's a mix. I, w- I would say 80% of the work I pitch and 20% kind of comes in and I get I get asked to do stuff. But I generally get asked to do stuff because I've I, I think I in the eyes of an assigning editor or publication, I seem like the right fit and I think as time goes on um, and the editorial photojournalism industry has changed a lot I, I think the days of actually assigning a photographer to parachute in and and, and tell a story um, and kind of leave a, a, a shrinking yeah. um, I think I think people really assign based on somebody that they think is the right fit or has an investment in that story or somehow has the capacity to tell that story in an interesting way as, as a freelancer anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, if you, you're a wire photographer for AP, that's a different mm-hmm. kettle of fish. Those guys get sent all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your, your work revolves a lot. I think a lot of, well, about conflict and, and protest and, and those sort of topics. Right. So is that you, you tend to attract that type of assignment, I guess, right? I do. Yeah. I guess there's some, existential questions I need to ask myself why I'm that guy but uh, <laughs> right. but, but I've always been drawn to conflict yeah. and 
and social tension. Yeah. I find I find that part of society interesting. Yeah. I want to understand that. Um, and I think as nations and states kind of reconcile with their own identity and and those kind of fractures become visible, mm-hmm. um, that's something that needs exploring. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm drawn to those spaces. I wanted to take a moment to let you know about an exciting new project we've launched called Quest. Quest is a subscription platform where each month a new preset and profile collection will be released giving subscribers access to fresh photo editing tools that are designed to push the boundaries of creative expression. On top of that, subscribers will get access to an education platform, new tutorials and bonus content each month. We wanted to keep the cost low and so we're doing all of this for only $8 a month. As a bonus, we have a limited time offer for our podcast listeners to get their first month of Quest for free. From now until the end of August, use the code PODCAST35 when you sign up for this special offer. This is a game changer in the preset world, and we're very excited about this new project, and we hope you will be too. So be sure to head over to archipelagoquest.com and check it out. Now, on with the show. I think you do a really good job of trying to maybe shed a different light on your subjects. It seems to be that's something you're actively doing, you know, in the way you're photographing even, right? So in the way you're, for example, the way you're using light to tell stories, like often, you know, you're using light in in really compelling ways and very dramatic ways. um, And you're finding a different perspective, I guess, uh, in portraying your subjects that lends itself to getting taking a different perspective on on these subjects. Is that is that accurate? I think I think when I approach a story, I try not to just focus on the isolated phenomenon, mm-hmm. but see the subject matter as as a larger theme. So instead of focusing on the micro, I look more at the macro. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a way to tell a story which feels a more timeless and also it anchors a story in bigger themes and i think once the story is anchored in bigger themes it's much more accessible mm-hmm. yeah i mean there, i think there's a stepping away from traditional imagery in a lot of your work or perhaps the glamorized imagery and there's it's almost like you're you're cutting you're cutting through the veil in, in a way in, in a creative way if that right. makes sense yeah i mean you know, I, I, for example, I, I photographed um, protesters in Hong Kong mm-hmm. uh, in 2019 when they were going, going through, you know, a dramatic amount of civil unrest. And I thought a lot about how I could approach that subject matter that was different, how I could elevate it. And I had been out on the streets photographing a protest and protesters throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails and, you know, there was a real kind of drama and spectacle of protest. Um, and that imagery is valid. And I, I, I made some of that imagery as did a lot of other, you know, very interesting local photographers and international photographers. But something started to feel limited about it. So I decided to bring some of those protesters into a studio and make a body of work which was very much 
more in line with a, a fashion or a commercial body of work. Mm-hmm. Like I had a commercial studio assistant. I rented a, a commercial studio and I started bringing um, these protesters with all their protest props into a commercial space yeah. and, yeah. And, and curating an image in a way which is very different and much more staged and theatrical than a, than a documentary photograph. And the reason I did that was because I started to see what was interesting about what was happening on the streets was surveillance, um, especially Chinese state surveillance. All these protesters had to operate in complete anonymity and were wearing masks and, you know, gas masks or, you know, various kind of paraphernalia to conceal their identity. Mm-hmm. So bringing them into a studio and starting to play with those protest props, all of a sudden, I, I, it, that gave me the ability not just to photograph protest, but also to make a comment on surveillance and what that means for the future of protest and what that meant for Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're incredibly dramatic images and, and creative, and it really does have that studio uh, fashion portrait feel to it, uh, you know, and it tells an amazing story at the same time. Um, I think you have another project that kind of reminds me of that one, and that was uh, uh, the one you, you titled The Bombs They Carried, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess you kind of almost did something very similar. Is that, now did that, did, I've, uh, one obviously followed the other. Was one sort of inspired by the, the other work in a sense? Uh, I guess it was a. Uh, I guess working with lighting and trying to 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 elevate documentary portraiture uh, has become a common thread to mm-hmm. a lot of the you know the the editorial photojournalism that I that I make. Mm-hmm. So 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 I guess the the answer is yes. The, the Bombs They Carried series, I worked on that a few years earlier than the, the Hong Kong work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was a little different because it wasn't shot in a studio. It was very much an on-the-fly location uh, shoot. But, you know, I actually had grand plans for that project and had dragged bags of lighting equipment to Nigeria, uh, but very quickly realized when I was on the ground that I wasn't going to have time to set up all my equipment and pre-light. Yeah. And these, you know, young women that had to keep their identities concealed would come in from a from a camp for the d- displaced or have 15 minutes to give me before they needed to get back to a relative's house. Right. A lot of the people I was staying with didn't even know that they'd been kidnapped by Boko Haram. So um. I ended up in this very quick time crunch, um, again, with people who's identities I had to conceal mm-hmm. so that was a uh, that was a project that really became very streamlined I used one light um, and I did I really didn't have time to to meter the flash adequately adequately and flag it mm-hmm. so I just used the modeling light on one of my flash heads so it become a very kind of simple technical production yeah um, but one of the things I, I did creatively is really try and reference some fashion imagery mm-hmm. in that and i did that because we had seen so much imagery out of nigeria and africa in a broader context um that depicted kind of poverty and marginalized people yeah. and i wanted to bring something different to this project and these young women had been through these you know extraordinary journeys and they were incredibly brave most of them had had 
relatives and siblings kidnapped or killed. Um, they'd then been trained as suicide bombers, deployed with explosives strapped to them, yeah. and had kind of pulled out of the mission and had the, the bravery and the internal grit to realize they were committing an act of war. Um, a lot of women went on to blow themselves up, not the women I photographed, of course, but mm. it was regular suicide bombings in the town where I photographed, and they were all carried out by young women. Um, so, so I found this demographic of, of women particularly extraordinary, and I wanted to present them in a very kind of beautiful and dignified way because that resonated with, with what they'd done in their, in their journey. Yeah. I think um, I want to ask you something, too, about um, when you're working on these projects, and, I, and I'm sure the answer is going to vary from one to the other, but there seems to be a fair amount of direction uh, happening in, in, in certainly some of your work, uh, in the posing of your subjects. Um, but there's, is there also often like some collaboration or interaction in, in sort of that process happening? Yeah, it's a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. I think collaboration is the the best process. Um, and even if it's not a direct collaboration and I am overtly directing a subject, I'm still directing a subject based on something that makes sense to their story yeah. or something that they have done, which I asked them to, to do again. Yeah. So yeah. For, I, I went to Iraq uh, and shot a story for the New York Times magazine about young kids that had been kidnapped by ISIS. Um, so in a lot of those portraits, I sat with a subject and their family and I interviewed them at length. And there was often things that happened during that interview. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a child would stand a certain way or a relative would embrace somebody in a certain way. So when it came to having the portrait sitting, I would bring those postures back into the photograph and I would ask people to, to pose like that again for me. Yeah. So, there's all, so, so there, is, there is a lot of direction in yeah. the work, but that direction is, is anchored directly to something that makes sense and has integrity to the subject and the story. Yeah. But then, yeah. of course, sometimes there's no direction needed and things just happen perfectly or somebody presents themselves in front of me and in front of a camera in a way that just makes perfect sense and that's enough. Yeah, yeah. I guess adaptability is something you, you've talked about before as well too. In, in Sometimes you have limited time, right? You've, you've got, you know, very small window to work with and, and you've, got to, you've got to adapt. But also too, in, in adapting in the sense of, you know, what's, what's presented to you by your subjects in, in these sometimes, you know, difficult moments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even outside of a documentary uh, context, you know, if I end up shooting a portrait of a celebrity or a politician, you still have, you know, I always go into these situations with a plan. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's always my, my ammo to have like a lighting plan and a, a couple of postures uh, in mind that I've storyboarded and I feel like they make sense to the character that I'm photographing and that's like a baseline and then it just it always unravels from there yeah. so you end up with something completely different or you end up sometimes with something better than what you initially planned it's yeah it's always a kind of intuitive unraveling kind of process with photography I find are you are storyboards uh, something that you 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 use often with your work? Yeah, they are. Um, not on 
like kind of longer yeah. photojournalistic assignments, but yeah. definitely on kind of portrait work. Yeah. I, de- I, I research other imagery. Uh, I look at, I, I always try and look kind of back through the canon of photography mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm kind of positioning my work in a way that makes sense, something that's an extension of what's been done uh, because obviously you can't totally reinvent the wheel. But I yeah. think that the happy place is to, is to deliberately reference other work, but somehow push it slightly forward. Um, I'm not saying I do that successfully every time, but that's <laughs> yeah. always the aim. Yeah, yeah, and I and I always try and dig into to the art world as well, and and because ultimately, even the earliest photography is influenced by by painting, and that's right. Yeah, it's, it's all one big kind of mesh of you know human narrative and experience. So yeah, I think mood boards are important. I I, I think it's crucial to go into a project with a very kind of clear concept and idea mm-hmm. and let it unfold from there. I find if I don't have something like that as a base, I can get lost in what I'm doing and, and fail very easily. Right, right. <laughs> who, who are some of your influences? If I mean, it doesn't have to be photographers. Uh, it could be anybody, really. Who... There's a, uh, a European painter from Belgium, Mikhail Boromans, Okay. Who I, re- I really love his his work. Uh, he paints some very quiet portraiture and often portraits of people with their back to the camera or a subject from behind. Uh, that's that's definitely uh, been an influence of mine, especially going into a couple of projects, the ones we talked about where I couldn't show people's identities. Right. Uh, when I was starting out as a as a photographer, the Australian photographer Trent Park was a big influence as a street photographer. Sebastian Salgado, James Natchway, all those very traditional black and white documentary photographers were very much my kind of early influences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think more recently I tend to – my influences are so broad it's hard to pin any down. I've been looking at a lot of Sophie Carl's work lately. Um, Alex Soth is a big influence. Yeah, but I but I find myself looking back at a lot of painting. Also, mm-hmm. big fan of the Renaissance period, and obviously I I reference you know that kind of light and palette in yeah. some of my conflict work. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's coming down the line for you? What do you got uh, coming up in terms of projects? Anything you can tell us about? I just finished a month traveling in the uh, southwest mm-hmm. of the USA, working on a climate change story. Oh, nice. Uh, so I'm having a, a breather right now, but I'm working on a long-term project in Australia, which I'm publishing as a book okay. next fall. So, you know, the the travel in and out of Australia is a little precarious at the moment with right. the COVID restrictions and Sydney's just gone into lockdown, but That's I am right. in the next few weeks um, attempting to get out to Australia. Yeah. And I'm going to head bush for a couple of months and finish this book project that I'm working on. Very cool. Very cool. Um, if, uh, you know, if you could go anywhere or photograph anyone, what, what, what or who would that be right now? Oh, I think it's my Australia work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is personal work that I'm undertaking. I'm really excited, um, to finish it. It's been like my kind of personal baby for about six years and it'll be my first monograph. Right. So, yeah, so if I could go anywhere right now and photograph, it would be to complete that work. <laughs> That's perfect, yeah. It's kind of like uh, going back, a return for you, I guess, in a way. 
It is a return. I mean, the work is very much, I mean, I've done what a lot of photographers do when they get disillusioned with their careers. They go home and <laughs> photograph. This is something That's I true. did, you know, five, six years ago when I started this project. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I was, I was having some of the, the disillusion with covering conflict that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And also falling out of love with photography right. a little bit. And I had this epiphany of I need to photograph my own place and my own people. Yeah. Um, so I started doing that work as a way to rekindle that that love with my my art and craft, and you know rehabilitate myself from a little too much conflict, mm -hmm. and and work on something that's personal. You know, working in a in an editorial context, it can often be very fast. You know, there's always a line you're tearing through people's lives. There's never enough time, and that can that can get frustrating. So it's yeah. it's kind of liberating to to have a project where I'm it's it's not anchored to a a big editorial story. There's no deadlines. I'm yeah. really just out there searching for my own pictures. And sometimes I make you know one or two a week, and sometimes I don't. But you just have to make peace with that different speed, and I really enjoy it. Amazing. That's perffect. Well, Adam, listen, thanks. I don't, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I really appreciate uh, you coming on and chatting with us today. I'm a huge fan of your work and, and uh, I'm going to encourage everybody to check out your newsletter and, and uh, just follow along. I, I just love that you share so much of your process over there. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just an honor to, to have uh, the chance to chat with you a bit about it today. Thanks, Sean. My pleasure. It was great to chat. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about Adam Ferguson, please check out the links in the show notes. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review as it helps others discover our show. And of course, don't forget to head over to archipelagoquest.com and use the code PODCAST35 to sign up for your first month of Quest for free. Thanks again. Until next time.